Code to Be podcast, where we talk to people on their coding journey in hopes of helping you on yours. I'm your host, Saran, and today we're talking about spatial computing with April Spade, cloud advocate for spatial computing at Microsoft. I feel like it's inevitable to do a little bit of hopping around when you're first starting, especially if you don't have someone there to hold your hand. And for me, I was literally treading in brand new water. April talks about moving from fashion to development, what spatial computing is, and her personal curriculum to learn what she needed to in order to make the switch from project management to the world of extended reality. After this. Are you looking to connect with a diverse audience of developers? Look no further. You can partner with us here at the Code Newbie Podcast, and we'll help get your message out to our incredible listeners in an ad just like this one, led by me, your host. Contact us by emailing sponsors at codenewbie.org. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing very well. Good to reconnect after eight years. Yes. We knew each other back in college. This is very exciting. So I love your story, April, because it's so fascinating. You've done so many things and you've been a part of many different industries. So I want to talk about life before Microsoft, where you were actually in the luxury fashion industry for six years. How did you get into fashion? Yeah. So, uh, you know, when we were in college, (laughs) (laughs) I needed a job. So that's how I started working in fashion. And it was one of those things where I didn't get a chance to work throughout high school. My mom wouldn't let me. And so when I got to college, it then flipped and I had to get a job if I wanted to go shopping and hang out and so on and so forth. So Mm -hmm. I ended up getting a job in retail at Juicy Couture. And by staying like within that area, I realized just how much I liked being around clothes all day. Mm-hmm. I loved how much how much fun it was working with customers, I would say. Mm. And just overall, just being immersed in that environment. So I ended up staying in fashion after that. And it was really a happy accident to the point where I ended up even getting my master's in luxury and fashion management. So wow. like that's how like dedicated I was. But that was up until I ended up transitioning into tech anyway. But that's how I started in fashion, though. Um, I needed a job in undergrad, and it was just one of those things that I happened to really have fallen in love with. Necessity is a very powerful force. Mm -hmm. So you went from fashion into tech. How did you get into tech? So as I was graduating from undergrad, because I ended up going to two different schools, and once I was finishing with my degree... I was still working in fashion at the time, and I realized that the particular career path I had set for myself working in fashion wasn't going to necessarily give me the lifestyle that I wanted to live, financially, Mm -hmm. that is. Mm -hmm. So I started looking for what other options I had, given what I had previously learned in school. And so when I had transferred colleges, one thing I did was pursue a certificate in business project management. So I hmm. had these project management principles like under my belt and I said, okay, maybe I can find a job as a project manager. And I started doing some searches online and everywhere was saying, 
needed IT experience to be a project manager. And I'm just like, I'm like, hmm, no one ever mentioned that in my classes. (laughs) That would have been good to know. Yeah, it would have been super good to know. So I started looking around as much as I could to find positions that were entry level. And it was really hard then to find any. And fortunately, I found the internship with the Consumer Electronics Association. They're now in the Consumer and Technology Association. And it was literally for an IT project management intern. So I got that position and that was my first walk into tech. And I can't say I've been in tech ever since because once I started that position, it was great. I did that for a couple of years and then I went back into fashion and then I came right back into tech after that. So what kind of stuff did you do as an intern in IT? Is it program management or product management? It was project management. Project. The other piece. I didn't get either of them right. Um, (laughs) As an intern in IT, project management, what kind of stuff did you do? There were a couple projects. As an intern, the first thing that we were working on was retiring our shopping cart, our online shopping cart for our site, which is we sold market research on our site. And what that involved was me doing some research with regards to what pages were getting the most engagement. Mm Having done that, I was able to put together like an evaluation of which certain things should stay, what should go away. And that also transitioned into a project that we were working on for our intranet as well with regards to what should we do away with and our members site as well. So it was a lot of evaluation around engagement. And beyond that, a lot of interfacing with different departments internally because the decisions that I guess the analysis you could say that I did impacted the work and the content that they had. And so Mm -hmm. it was a lot of conversations with them to let them know what was going on, what my findings were and the recommendations that we had going forward. So that was one project. Another project was the launch of our new help desk. And so that was my baby. And I was Mm -hmm. responsible for understanding how to configure the entire system and also more or less if you want to think of it as architecting, just how things were set up from a configuration standpoint. And so I worked on that as well. I put together training materials for that and I'm responsible for the entire rollout plan of that. And so as an intern, I would say I got to do a lot of speaking. (laughs) I got to do a lot. (laughs) And it was a lot of speaking with people beyond my level and beyond my manager. And I think that was super important because that made me comfortable early on speaking with people who were at like VP level, for example. Mm. I was offered a full-time position when I um, Mm. was in that internship, which was lovely. And I was there for two years. And then I got to the point where I felt really comfortable with what I was doing. And we had some internal changes in our department to the point where my manager, she transitioned to a different department. Mm. I really wanted to take over what she was doing, but unfortunately, and as I'm sure many folks at home will learn as they're starting out on their journey, in some places, having the credentials can matter. And it was one of those situations where even though I had shown throughout that time that I could be a project manager by title, I didn't have the project management professional certification. So I know that certifications is uh, something that the developer world is kind of torn about. Mm -hmm. And I feel kind of torn about it too, because on the one hand, it's definitely better than requiring a four-year degree. 
Right. Yeah. If I can pick between yeah. a certification that takes, you know, six months or a year to study for that I can do in my own time, that's, you know, ridiculously cheaper than a four-year degree, that definitely lowers the barrier of entry to people and makes it more accessible, right? Yeah. So on the one hand, it's really great. And actually, Google, mm-hmm, I I saw. You, you, did, you ca- did you catch that? Yeah. yeah they announced uh, Google courses and their own Google certificates where yeah. they said if you pass these certificates in, in different technical topics, then you qualify for a job interview at Google, which mm-hmm. is incredible, you know? Yeah. And so I think certificates can be really powerful and a really great way to include more people in tech. But I can also see the frustration of someone yeah. like you who mm-hmm. has the job skills. Like you've proven yourself. You've yeah. done the internship. You've done the job. You've you've been doing the work. And to have to take a step back to, to study, mm-hmm. take the time mm-hmm. off, spend the money, that can be really frustrating. So I'm wondering, given your experience and given kind of the larger context of certifications, where do you stand on that? I personally don't like them. Uh, okay. Primarily, <laughs> primarily reason, being, <laughs> reason being that I don't test well. I've never been a test taker. I know some people live for taking tests, but I don't. And <laughs> it's not a matter of not knowing the information. It's the anxiety that comes around taking tests. And I was always that person in school, whereas, you know, when you're taking uh, quizzes and such, you're in your own zone. You can answer everything. You know everything. But for me, the second the teacher or the professor walks up behind me, I shut Mm. down completely and Mm. I get so nervous around. It's kind of like one of those things where it's like you're learning how to do something and then you do it. And then as soon as everyone's watching, it's like, oh, wait, I can't do it now because you're looking. That's that's how I approach test taking. And it's just something about it. I just can't do it. And so because of that reason, I feel like for individuals who can resonate with that, it does make it really unfair because... Mm. You know the information, but because you didn't answer 50 or so questions, however many questions it is on this exam, you're quote unquote, not qualified to be certified in this thing. And I don't think Mm -hmm. that's really fair for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, But I will say when I did hear about the Google announcement, literally that was yesterday when I heard it, I felt jealous for, not jealous in like a negative way, but jealous in like a positive way, if that's even possible for the folks (laughs) who can't take advantage of this because- Getting that four-year degree is not the easiest thing in the world. And like I took, what, five or six years to get that four-year degree. So mm-hmm. so it, it does free up a lot of time, which I think lowers the barrier to entry in a good way, which I can appreciate. But, you know, for cases where college isn't an option, doing certificates in place, I think, is great. But then it does leave out those folks who just overall don't do well with taking tests and... So let's talk about your second time entering tech. What was that like? Where did you, where'd you land? So I first shot for the moon and tried to just land somewhere that was big and grand and fabulous and it did not happen. So I took a step back (laughs) and I said, okay, I felt, which is probably like a bad way to think about it. I felt like I was too old to do an internship. And when Mm -hmm. I say that, I don't mean from an age perspective, I mean from an experience perspective because I had already worked in tech. So I didn't feel like I needed another internship to get back Mm. into tech. But I said, what else can I do? And that's what I decided to do contract work instead. And so I entered tech again through a contract that I had with a law firm that was launching a new website and they needed to do Q and A before doing the launch. And literally Saran, I was only responsible for looking at all of the copy on the new site 
ensuring that things work the way that they were supposed to work. And that was literally all I did. The contract was supposed to be for, I think, three weeks and it got extended to like two months. And once it was coming to an end, I had already started interviewing at other places and Hmm. I got a new full-time position with Lidl US. They were coming to the States and their headquarters was in Northern Virginia. And I got a position over there helping to roll out new vendor management software. And so that was how I came back into tech, started with contract work. And then I officially got into a role that I really wanted to do. So now you were at Microsoft. So mm-hmm. I guess it, it ends up where that, you know, landing at that big, fashionable, mm-hmm. amazing company ended up happening. Yes. How did you end up there? You know what? I will say having a network is everything. Mm -hmm. So when I was ready to move on to a new company, at that point, I had happened to have created a very vast network of individuals that were already working in tech. And so when I approached job searching this go round with Microsoft, I felt for once that the tables were turned with regards to, now I was the one that got to be picky and choosy about who Mm -hmm. I wanted to work for. You know, I was the (laughs) one that was, we'll see when I have time for an interview, you know? (laughs) There it is. So it was was a really big change, but I got to that point because I knew a lot of folks who were already working in tech and I was able to speak with people individually one-on-one about different roles. I was able to speak with some actual like founders of different companies that I interviewed with to talk more about their roles, which I thought was really helpful. And when it came to Microsoft, literally I was on Twitter and I saw a tweet from my now former coworker since he's moved on to another company who had mentioned that his team was hiring. And so we connected, we talked some, he told me about the position and ended up initially getting in contact with who became my manager in December. And then in January, that's when I did my interviews with Microsoft. And it turned out really well. I I really liked it. I felt that I was well prepared for that interview. But like I said, it, it all came to be because I had grown my network at that point or just me reaching out to someone at a company and saying, hey, is there anything open? And that made a very big difference, I would say. Mm -hmm. Took years, Mm -hmm. but finally happened. Is your company looking to connect with a diverse audience of developers? Look no further. The dev community is the go-to destination for developers to learn, connect, and support each other. You can share your message with the 15 million developers that visit every single month by using our powerful native advertising platform. To learn more, visit dev.2 slash advertise. So you went from project management to spatial computing, which yeah. is what you do now. Those seem very different from they each other. are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so how did we get to spatial? Well, first of all, let's see, what is spatial computing? And then tell us how you got there. So 
I work within the area of extended reality, and that encompasses all the different realities that we're aware of, such as augmented reality, virtual reality, and uh, there's mixed realities in there, spatial computings in there as well. And within the uh, mixed reality realm, that's really a spectrum from augmented reality to virtual reality. And that's when you're able to interact with the virtual world while you're in the real world. And when you start to bring spatial computing into it, that's when you can consider experiences that are involved around really having those interactions with what's happening in the real world, in the virtual world. So a really good example, let's say that in my like real world office, I have my computer desk, for example. Mm -hmm. And in my device that I'm wearing, let's say it happens to be a HoloLens, I have a holographic ball. And Mm -hmm. as we know in real life, balls are round. So if you were to drop a ball, for example, in real life, it would roll because that's what we Mm -hmm. expect it to do. Mm -hmm. Now, if I were to put this holographic ball on the surface of my real life desk, it'll stay still where it is. It probably won't move. But the moment that I actually move this holographic ball to the edge of my real world desk, it's going to roll over and fall. And then what I should see after that is this holographic ball should roll across the ground because now it has physics that's been added to it and it acts like a real ball. So Mm -hmm. that ability to blend those worlds together and have these holographic objects be uh, spatially aware of what's in the surroundings, that's when you get into the spatial computing area of stuff. And there's, there's a lot more to it. That's probably the most watered down version and example <laughs> that I could give. That was a great example. But, I love that uh, example. But perfect. So yeah, so I, I, I do things like that. And how I got into this, that network, honestly, I was sitting on Twitter one day at LaGuardia waiting to board my delayed flight. And I saw a tweet from a Microsoft account about a HoloLens demo that was using speech translation. So The person who was speaking in English, they were having a shared experience. And the person on the other end, they were receiving that output translated into their language, which I think was Japanese. And so I was Mm -hmm. amazed by that. And I said, how, like, what do I need to learn to do this? And then at that point, people from the XR community were chiming in with just resources and links and blah, 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 blah. And the folks that magically they were kind enough to reach out and said, hey, we're doing a workshop coincidentally in LA this weekend. Are you interested in coming? And so I ended up going to that workshop and that was my very first time ever trying out that technology. And then the folks at Microsoft from the mixed reality team had reached out and then we connected. So when I had went to campus during one of my visits, that's when I got to learn more. And from there, and it got to a point where I realized that this is something that I actually want to do as like a job. I want to create content around this because for so long I had been creating tech content just on the side for fun. And so I ended up being able to upskill what I needed to know. The rest from there, I would say, is, is history. <laughs> so what team were you coming from? I was coming from the Docs team. So uh, the team that works with docs.microsoft.com, our documentation mm-hmm. platform, mm-hmm. I was a program manager. I had went from project to program. So I was a program manager <laughs> with the Docs team, and I was responsible for interactive features. So features that you can interact with on our site, those are the ones that I helped bring to life. And so that was the team that I was first with at Microsoft. 
I'm assuming, you know, it was very helpful that you were already at Microsoft. You were already mm-hmm. doing some tech stuff. You mentioned having some tech side projects. But still, when I think about spatial computing, it sounds so otherworldly, which, you know, <laughs> makes sense because it's different realities. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I'm a big fan of VR. We had the Vive when it first came out. We have the Oculus Go. We have the Quest. We use our Quest almost every day. And whenever I'm in VR, I keep thinking, I have no idea how to imagine beginning yeah. to conceptualize yeah. <laughs> coding in this yeah. context. Like I, I would have no idea, you know, where to think about beginning. Mm-hmm. And so going from documentation to that world feels like such a huge leap. And it you was. mentioned kind of upskilling. <laughs> yes. Tell me about your upskilling process. What did that involve? It first started out with being overwhelmed by everything that I had to learn because I was brand new to this area and it got to a point where I was trying to figure out, should I start with this first? Should I do this other thing first? Should I know what how 3D works? Should I understand how physics work? So mm. I ended up going to the different platforms that I personally knew of that had documentation that existed and whatever seemed remotely interesting. And that narrowed down to looking at Google's documentation because, you know, they have the Google Cardboard. And then I also looked at uh, what Magically Pad. And I also looked at what we had at Microsoft as well. And then I looked at courses that were available on Udacity because they had a program And so I looked at what all these different documentations and courses taught. I didn't sit and read and learn. I actually looked at what like the main topics were. And I used that to help me put together what I titled my XR curriculum. And Mm. I I had that to outline where I should probably start. And for me, the one thing that everything had in common was learning Unity, which is a game engine. And it turns out that I needed to know Unity really to understand how to do all the different tutorials that I was running into. And so as I was figuring out how to use Unity, they have a really great set of documentation, by the way, in terms of how they do their learning. But I also learned that I needed to know a new language. And at the time, mm-hmm. all I knew was Python. So mm-hmm. I now had to learn C Sharp if I wanted to do any scripting. So I spent time learning C-sharp with Codecademy, as well as within Microsoft, within Channel 9, Scott Hanselman and Kendra, and I always forget her last name. They both have a series of uh, C-sharp basics. And I literally mm. sat and went through all of, all of what's in through that so I could understand C-sharp, not to master it, but to understand what was going on. And mm. so once I had Unity, once I had C-sharp, then I was able to start working with different tools. And for me, it's primarily been the Mixed Reality Toolkit, which is one of the packages that we have that you can import at Microsoft into your Mixed Reality experiences to help accelerate your Mixed Reality development. Once I started playing around with that a bit more, then I began to learn about other tools available. I had done some work with Magically because I had the device. That was one thing I can say I was fortunate for. I had devices and not everyone mm. has that luxury either. And they can be expensive. Yes, they definitely can be expensive. But it was really overall finding common ground between what everyone was teaching and helping that define where I needed to start. And for me, that was 100% starting with Unity, then learning C Sharp to understand scripting. And then from there, it was a matter of, okay, what do I want to build? And once I realized what I wanted to build over time, I started looking up how to do different things, whether it was on YouTube, for example, or just reading through different 
docs through people's like personal blogs because for this industry i feel documentation is in its infancy compared to like if i wanted to go learn python i feel like you can go anywhere and learn how to learn python Mm -hmm. stuff is everywhere Mm -hmm. but if you want to learn xr (laughs) it's not the same and you really have to do a lot of the legwork to go find documentation and there's no set path in learning how to do anything because so many of us venture into our own little areas of, of what we get into. And to this day, like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff I still don't know, but every time I start a new project, it opens the door to still learning. And I would say one thing that I wish that all managers did, because my manager did it when I started with this team at Microsoft, I had two months to focus on upskilling. And that was all I did was learn. I, I didn't have to you know create content or anything. I had a dedicated two months to just sit and learn. That's wonderful. It's, it is great. And even now that I've, like, I've settled into my role, upskilling is still part of like all of our day-to-day, not just me, but we're also responsible for learning how things work. And so every week, I'm, I literally have time blocked on my calendar to sit and learn how to do something. I love that. Two months of just focusing on learning. Did you get to design your curriculum during that time or did they kind of guide you and tell you what you should learn? We had a list of areas that folks on the team should be familiar with, not mastery, but familiar Mm -hmm. with so that we could at least speak to it. But then beyond that, if there were any other areas that you really wanted to get a little deeper in the weeds on, then by all means, like, go ahead and do it. But that's why I say it was a mix. It it wasn't uh, only learn these things. It was, Mm -hmm. you should know (laughs) these things and then whatever else you're, you know, you're, you're interested in. I love your approach to learning and how you designed your own curriculum. And I think that's a really great strategy because one of the big problems we have in our community of people who are learning how to code is resource hopping, right? You start with one thing and you're like, ah, should I really do this other thing? You go to this other thing and you're like, man, I'm looking at this other book. I should, And then you just keep jumping around and you never finish anything. But it sounds like you almost like intentionally jumped around just enough to kind of look at the topics and figure out what you needed to know. You pulled all that together. You looked at what they had in common and then you built out your curriculum. And then it, you know, I I imagine you probably had more conviction in how you were learning and what you were learning because you'd already done the research and you were probably very confident in your strategy. And I just, I love that as a piece of advice for people listening who might be kind of figuring out how they should start learning a new language or new framework. Yeah. And I feel like it's inevitable to do a little bit of hopping around when you're first starting, especially Mm -hmm. if you don't have someone there to hold your hand. And for me, I was literally treading in brand new water. And a lot of the folks that already worked in this area. For the most part, a lot of them have been doing it for so long. And it was kind of hard to really get out of anyone. What should I learn first? Because everyone has their opinion on what you should learn first. And a lot of it comes down to what is it that you want to do? And even Mm -hmm. beyond working in spatial, when I was even learning Python, for example, I narrowed it down to what it was I wanted to do. And for me, I wanted to create chatbots and AI assistants. And so I did the same thing that I did for um, learning stuff within XR for Python. And that was actually where I got the idea first was because I had my own Python curriculum that I had created. And it was heavily tailored towards working with chatbots. And I know not everyone knows upfront what their end goal is, But I feel that when you are starting out with the basics and you get a good understanding of how it works through looking at other projects or even in the midst of learning just the basics, 
it's very possible that you'll start to gravitate more towards a certain area. And once you realize whatever that area is that you want to gravitate towards, start putting curriculum around that particular area. And sometimes you might think you like something a lot and you start to learn it and then you hate it. And that's honestly how I started with Python because I thought Mm -hmm. I wanted to do data science and then I hated data science. So, (laughs) you know, like, I think that's okay because at the end of the day, you still learn something, but it's okay to pivot and start learning something else. So we spent a good chunk of time talking about spatial computing, but I want to hear about cloud advocacy. So we've had a handful of developer advocates on the show, but I want to hear about a cloud advocate. What does that mean? Yes. So as you know, at Microsoft, we have our fabulous Azure. (laughs) (laughs) And a majority of the content and awareness that we create around cloud services is all in itself dedicated to Azure and showing you what you can do and build and such and connect that with Azure. So for us over in the spatial world, Lately for me, that has been making a lot of use out of our speech services, for example, and that falls within our cognitive services. And so most of the experience that I've been creating lately, essentially there's a mic in the experience that takes in an utterance and sends it to the cloud, which is Azure. And then it gives you an output of a string. And that's how you're getting that communication channel going back and forth as of literally uh, maybe an hour or two before you and I started talking today, I got our our bot working that we have with um, nice. our bot service within Azure. So essentially, it's it's showing these different ways that you can use our different Azure services with you know your own projects or your own experiences or your, your apps that you're creating. And when you're looking at the area of spatial. You can use a lot of the existing products that we have within Azure in your mixed reality experiences. And so, for example, I've seen or I've even tried out using like custom vision, for example, so that way we can do object recognition, if you will, Mm. and facial recognition as well that you can also incorporate. And those features, if you will, are all possible because we have services that are available that heavily utilize or they have you guys because they are they're part of Azure. So, <laughs> so yeah, so a, a lot of what the content and awareness that we create is around working with cloud services. Coming up next, April talks about some of her favorite projects that she's worked on in spatial computing, as well as some of her favorite resources to get into the extended reality niche after this. Tell me about some of your favorite projects that maybe you've worked on or your team has worked on Mm -hmm. in spatial computing. So... Uh, it's not quite spatial, but I want to share it anyway, because I think that okay. really helped create my confidence in being able to feel like I can do this. Just before I came into my team, I had attended my very first hackathon at MIT Reality Hack of this year, oh. and it was great. The team that I was on, we created a dyslexia and dysgraphia therapy app for children. It's a VR experience. And it's designed to be used by um, like a speech therapist, if you will. And there's a wizard in the experience and the child 
they have a magic wand and they have to draw the letters of the words. So if you had cat, for example, you use your magic wand to spell cat out to write hmm. it. And we, yeah. we, we incorporated or integrated ways to check that they were actually writing the correct letter and things of that nature. And then the very last piece of it is after they were able to write it out, we checked for the ability to, to recognize what the word was. And so we had some speech thrown in there to listen for them to say an utterance. And if it was mm -hmm. correct, then they cast a magic spell. And so I really liked that particular project because that was my very first like project. Like prior to that, I had did all these like little small tutorials here and there, but that was my first chance to actually put some skills to use. And I worked on that speech component actually. So I was really happy for that. We won in two categories for that hackathon. And that in itself made me feel like it was possible to go on and, and do stuff in, in this area, even like beyond the team atmosphere, just doing it by myself. So I really loved that. But for things that I've been working on beyond that, the apps I've been working on lately, because they involve speech, uh, one that I shared recently was a flashcard game, if you will. Mm, so mm -hmm. I've been learning French since we've been quarantined. And good for you. <laughs> thank you. And I wanted a way to incorporate that into like mixed reality in some way. So what I did was I created these flashcards and you either have like an English mode or a French mode. And depending on the mode you're in, let's say the cards were all in English, for example. And so I would press on one, I would say the word in French. And if I pronounced it correctly, then I was awarded points. So mm -hmm. it was a way for me to really learn a lot more of what I could do within Unity, I would say. I was able to learn how to create different scenes as well, which was not something that I had done in the past in Unity. And scenes are essentially... When you start a video game, you start on that main menu and then you go into like another part of the game, that other part of the game would be like a whole new scene. So I had never done mm -hmm. anything that like switched scenes before. I had only did everything that was in one scene. So now I had the chance to flip between scenes. I had some voice that was in there. I did some scripting, which was like a big challenge for me because C Sharp is not my language, but I had some success with that. And so that one, I would say, was probably one of my other favorite ones, but I literally work on projects every week. <laughs> wow. Ah, your life sounds so exciting. <laughs> so I'm curious, given the fact that you entered tech twice, you've done fashion, you've done project management, you've done IT, you've done so many things. I'd love to get your advice on how people can be where you are. If people mm -hmm. want to get into spatial computing and be cloud advocates, mm -hmm. uh, what advice do you have for them on how to get started? If you want to become an advocate, whether it's a cloud advocate, developer advocate, one thing that I would say has been really helpful was to show the ability to create content and get people talking. Because I would say I'm probably messing up the numbers, but either 70 to 80% of my job is creating content. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. for me, walking into this transfer that I had to this team, I already had content that existed on the internet for people to see. The managers that I have now and even his manager, 
who's my skip manager, they were already aware of my work. So I didn't have to prove mm-hmm. to anyone that, you know, I was capable during like an interview of creating content because I already had work that existed, whether it was blog posts or YouTube videos or, or whatnot. That was like one really important part is already having existing content because it shows that you can create content, but also you're able to engage with community because most of what we do is engage with the community. But Start creating content. Don't wait for someone to give you the permission to do it. Go create little mini YouTube video series. Go live stream. Go write blog posts on, you know, a a topic area that you're really passionate about. Because I feel like when you are creating content, it comes across as, first of all, more knowledgeable because it's something that you're always doing already. Mm -hmm. Personally, for me, I can feel emotion through reading people's writing. And so it gives me an idea of like how much this person likes this area. And so that's why I say if you're doing content, let it focus on the area that you like the most. And I would tell you, it makes it 100 times easier to create content around stuff that you like. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And do you have any favorite resources for spatial computing in terms of leveling up and learning? Yes, definitely. So with Microsoft, we have a really great amount of documentation within our mixed reality docs. And search for Mixed Reality Academy should take you to our docs that we have at Microsoft. And there are a good amount of tutorials there to help you get started. We also do link off to some other sites. Like if you've never used Unity, we do insist that you learn Unity and we'll point you in that direction. But I would say our docs, um, lie, lie to you not, I still look at them every day to for some reason. Like there's always something that I need that's already in there. So I go and mm-hmm. reference that. But also beyond the learning how to do this part, we have a lot of conceptual documentation around how to design for these experiences and what you should consider when you are working in this space. And I think that's really helpful too, because the worst thing that you could do is create an experience and then it doesn't follow any sort of best practices. So we have a lot of documentation in that area as well. So I know that if you go to aka.ms slash MR Academy, that'll take you to those Mixed Reality Academy docs. And worst case, if you search Mixed Reality Academy through your favorite search engine, it'll also bring you there as well. Now, at the end of every episode, we ask our guests to fill in the blanks of some very important questions. April, are you ready to fill in the blanks? I'm all set and ready. Number one, worst advice I've ever received is? Not to change my hair so much. So, Oh, interesting. <laughs> I want to hear the story behind this one. Yeah, and I think it came from a place of well-intention and also realizing and understanding that there are generational differences for folks who work in tech because there are some folks who are, you know, of, of, of my age and I'm a millennial. And then there's some who are like my parents' age and they've been there a little longer. And so... I didn't take it in a bad way. I took it from a place of we are of two different generations and what you may have experienced as you are building your way up in your career may very well have been valid, but with where we are now, things are changing. So that was said to me as I was transitioning from my first job in tech into a whole new role. And it came from a place of of not raising too many eyebrows because I am the type of person that changed my hair like every week. Like my dad, mm-hmm. my dad does hair. So by default, oh. I fell in love with the idea of changing hair. And like, even now like I cut all my hair off during the middle of quarantine, you know? So oh. I actually didn't follow that advice. 
I went into my new role and I had all types of hair sarong. <laughs> At one point I had black and white hair. Like I, oh, wow. I, had, I had, I had done everything to my hair, but that just goes to show you that you should not feel pressure to succumb to a certain look to appease others when mm-hmm. you are working in, especially in this industry or to make other people feel comfortable. You know, if there's a certain way that you want to portray yourself that um, like physically or aesthetically, by all means, go do it. I'm not I'm not trying to fit this certain this certain tech box. I mm-hmm. still very much dress as though I'm still in the fashion industry, you know, <laughs> you. and yeah. uh, I, it makes me feel more free. and It makes me feel like I don't have to worry about trying to, to be a certain way to make others happy. So that was the, that was the worst advice. Number two, best advice I've ever received is. The best advice I've ever received came from when I was working at Saks and one of our stylists had said to me, we're not curing cancer. That has Mm. stuck with me for so long because the work that we were doing in like the styling world, we weren't doing anything that was life changing, you know? Mm. And the point she was making there was that you can chill out. (laughs) You know, you don't have to do this around (laughs) the clock and let it worry you to death. Like it's okay to take a step back and to chill. And that has also followed me into me working in tech now because it's at the end of the day, like unless obviously you're working on a project that is working on helping to cure, you know, any any of the 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 life's ills that we have. You can take mm-hmm. a step back and chill. You can take a break. You know, it's it's one of those things where you, you don't have to drive yourself into the ground to to finally make your code work. For example, mm-hmm. it's okay mm-hmm. to it's okay to take a break and chill out. So that's been like the best advice. <laughs> yeah, I've received. Yeah, I like that. Number three, my first coding project was about very first coding project. I'll I'll tie it into that one that I did within Spatial. It was the the app that we did at the MIT Reality Hack. That was my first actual project that I worked on. And um, I loved it. I, I really, I really did. I, I got to also tie in that speech component, which was one thing I was really super passionate about. Mm-hmm. And uh, it gave me the confidence that I have to this day to work in this space. Number four, one thing I wish I knew when I first started to code is? One thing I wish I knew was that you can go as fast as you want to. One thing that I've come to realize is that unless you are pressured to do something by a certain amount of time in terms of learning, there's no real reason to rush and do it. Like Take your time and learn. Don't feel that you have to learn X, Y, Z by, you know, by Friday because you see so-and-so on, on Twitter talking about this project that they've made. You know, it's one of those things where you don't have to feel rushed to be as fast as everyone else, especially mm. because you don't know how fast or slow other people were in their own learning. It's totally okay to slow down and take mm-hmm. as long as you need. Like literally to this day, Saran, and even though like I wrote a whole book, I still <laughs> have to like search how to create virtual environments with Python mm. because like, huh. there's just certain things that you know, they might not stick and it's okay to have to go back and, and reference yeah. them and relearn them. Even working with APIs, for example, not my favorite topic, but I've gotten more comfortable <laughs> with it, I would say. And there are times where I still need to go back and, and go back and, and review some stuff, but there's nothing saying that like I have to quickly hurry up and go do it. It's okay to, to slow down. And I think starting out, I was trying to speed things up and hurry up and learn and for me mentally, it doesn't work that way. I need to take my time mm-hmm. and let things sit. And I need to sit and get comfortable and let things marinate in my brain yeah. before I move forward. 
Absolutely. Love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us, April. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. This show is produced and mixed by Levi Sharp. You can reach out to us on Twitter at CodeNewbies or send me an email, hello at CodeNewbie.org. Join us for our weekly Twitter chats. We've got our Wednesday chats at 9 p.m. Eastern Time and our weekly coding check-in every Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. For more info on the podcast, check out www.codenewbie.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next week.